Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. It seems like everyone has an opinion about identity politics, but far fewer people have a clear definition of it. This is a problem, not just because arguing about vaguely defined terms is rarely productive, but also because identity politics plays an important role in how we ought to think about liberalism and the role of liberal institutions. My guest today is Akiva Malamet, managing editor of The Unpopulist. Our discussion digs into the nature of identity politics, the nature of identity itself, what it means to validate versus merely tolerate identities, and how all that plays into liberalism. Let me very briefly mention that Reimagining Liberty is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy these discussions and want to get early access to new episodes, you can become a supporter by heading to reimaginingliberty.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Akiva Malamut. We talk a lot about we being basically everyone, talk a lot about identity politics. What do we mean by that term? So it's a good question in part because it's not always clear what everyone does mean by identity politics. Sometimes they mean politics that in some way references a form of identity. So we might talk, let's say, about criminal justice policy. And then we might talk about, as a result of talking about criminal justice policy, we might talk about, let's say, the disproportionate impact it has on African Americans. Another way of talking about identity politics is the ways in which politics or a form of politics in which the priority is about how a certain identity group is being treated and a series of policies that are oriented around that. So instead of just talking about the disparate impacts of African-Americans, you might talk about, well, what is it to be an African-American in society today? How are you affected? What are the different uh, social indicators of your group success? And in many ways to define people as members of identity groups, whether those racial, religious, sexual, gender orientation, and so on, and to talk about the ways in which they are, they uh, exist in society, the way that they're impacted in society, and to see uh, their struggle as a distinctive form of political struggle. So rather than talking about policies in general that affect societies, policies about healthcare and how they affect us, we're talking about how does uh, society treat a particular group? What are the outcomes for that particular group? And in particular, does the fact that that particular group exists or has some kind of presence in society, does that mean people in that group should advocate for themselves on the basis of their group membership? That is, should they see themselves primarily as group members rather than, let's say, as individuals or simply members of society? Should they... Uh, think about themselves primarily with respect to that particular identity, to a particular identity that they have, whether that's racial, religious, sexual, gender, and so on, and advocate for themselves in the, those terms. So it has kind of a dual dimension. It refers to both, both to how does society think about how it's composed? Is it composed of individuals rather than members of groups? And then how do group members think about themselves? Do they think about themselves as individuals rather than members of groups? Are these groups voluntary or, I suppose, consciously entered into? And I guess what I mean by that is if I am going to – if I have some sort of obligation to 
advocate as a member of a particular group, it seems to matter a lot if I identify as a member of that group, if it's a group that I feel is representative of me or that I share something in common with other people who are in that group that I don't share with people who are outside of it. But it seems like a lot of the groups that we think about from identity politics standpoint are almost imposed upon people. We say we as a society have chosen to recognize these particular characteristics as salient. So skin color puts you into categorizable groups, but hair color doesn't or height doesn't, but national origin does, but that's not necessarily freely chosen and it also it also changes. So different groups have been have been white at one time or another in in American history, recognized as being in different racial categories. And that would seem to complicate a lot of this, especially when it comes to either deciding whether different difference differences that we might identify um, in terms of outcomes, in terms of policy, latch on to, I guess, actual groups versus arbitrarily created ones. And then also, if we're saying you as a member of this category have like an obligation to have solidarity, identity with, advocate on behalf of, et cetera, the potential arbitrariness of these groups would seem to complicate a lot of that. Yeah, so there. This is a very complicated question because identity is a complicated question, and in many ways, identities are combinations of things. They are both statuses that other people impose upon us. So, I might not think of myself as particularly, you know, white or non-white, right? Um, but other people will decide for me whether I'm white or non-white. In my case, this was actually a relevant question in the beginning of the 20th century because I'm Jewish, and Jewish people were not always considered white. Uh, but over time, Jews and other ethnic minorities, religious minorities such as Catholics, Italians, Greeks, and so on, were eventually became part of what is considered white. Um, and it was no be, whiteness was no longer the preserve of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, the WASP majority. Um, and so there was a transformation of identity of whiteness from this thing that was declared upon other people to a expansion of the idea of whiteness to include larger and larger groups of people. So in many cases, identity is something that people don't choose. It's something that's thrust upon them. And then the way that they think about themselves is in terms of the oppression that they experience. Because in many cases, identity groups are a function of an oppressive dynamic. So the most obvious case there has to do with Blacks and African Americans, but also Native Americans, Indigenous people, and so on. Um, but we can also include this to any group of people that suffered discrimination in the American case. You know, we talk, might talk about Catholics and Jews to a lesser extent um, until really a change in the middle of the 20th century when they were no longer considered, when they started becoming considered white. But on the other hand, identities aren't just things that people choose for you. They're also things that you choose for yourself. So someone might decide that I'm Jewish, I'm of, of Jewish ancestry, but my engagement with what be doing Jewish means will be my choice, right? I could become an Orthodox Jew, I could become a Reformed Jew, I could have a wide variety of identifications with Jewish ethnicity and religion, and that will 
ultimately determine the way that I relate to my identity and what that identity means will be affected as much by my choices as it will by what other people choose for me. And so I, I would say that there's a dialectical back and forth relationship between identities as both imposed and unimposed. Um, Charles Taylor, a philosopher that I'm a big fan of, says that identities are positional. They're not just about um, the statuses that you're given, but they're also about the values that you hold. They're about the things that you care about. And what an identity will mean to you and to what extent you even accept an identity is going to be heavily influenced by the things that you care about and what they mean to you. Um, because even if someone else imposes onto you certain as- attributions, you might reject what those attributions means. And we can see that when, for example, in debates over being queer or being gay, different definitions of what those things mean, where some people consider themselves part of the quote-unquote LGBT community, other people don't. And those differences don't necessarily have anything to do with their sexuality or gender identity. Sometimes they may have un- uh, different differing sexualities or gender identities, just like everyone else in the queer community, but they may not consider themselves queer because of what queerness has come to mean in society and culture. Is part of this about then privileging or giving weight to certain aspects of an identity? You, Akiva, are, you're Jewish. You're also a heavy metal fan. You are a writer. You have, you know, like you, there's a lot of things that go into the identity that is Akiva. And when it, but when it comes to identity politics, we don't, we don't talk about like metalhead identity politics really. Right. Or, I mean, I guess the closest example is like, I spent a lot of time in the punk rock community as a kid and we hated the hippies. And that was like, they were a, a disfavored class, you know, but like, but by and large, it mapped, there's certain kinds of things and we tend to weight those in a particular, we would say, a lot of people would say, like, think that your Jewishness is more, if we're identifying, like, what is Akiva's identity, that would seem to get privileged, just like maybe the color of your skin would seem to get privileged, or your ethnic background over your interest in writing or your interest in heavy metal. But that's, again, something that's not necessarily freely chosen as far as what you emphasize in your own identity. Yeah, for sure. And to some extent, um, you know, the way that those things might be arranged might depend on context as well. So I might consider both my heavy metal identity and my Jewish identity to be important, but they're important at different ways in different times and different places. So, you know, when I'm at the synagogue, my Jewish identity is going to be probably more important than when I'm at a metal concert and vice versa, right? And so they're going to have contextual relevance. Um, in that way. But for someone who's thinking through the lens of identity politics, it doesn't matter whether I'm at the synagogue or the metal concert. I'm Jewish in both of those contexts for someone who's thinking about identity politics. Um, yeah, I mean, I think to some extent this points at the degree, the heavy, heavy degree which identities are not chosen, um, to which they're imposed upon us by society. And in particular, the way in which political coalitions grow up tend to be around people with uh, either who have suffered some form of oppression, but combined with some kind of deep um, pre-modern form of social tie. So, um, and by that I mean a social tie that's not necessarily chosen, but is kind of something that you emerge from as an accident of birth. Um, so, metal is a is a musical preference. It's something I chose. It's not something that people identi- use as a form of identity politics because it doesn't have the same quite, I mean, 
as a metal fan, I would say metal, the metal community is quite, is quite tribal. Um, and anyone who's been to a metal concert can kind of, or a punk punk show can kind of get that sense. Um, but the level of tribalism and the kind of unchosen, almost mystical level of bondedness that you get from an identity such as being Jewish or identity such as being black or identity uh, such as being queer um, connects you to other people in a very primal way, I think, that um, doesn't that has a kind of hold on you that is that is not completely chosen and doesn't give you the same um, because it doesn't have that hold that that external hold on you. There are really two forms of external holds, right? One is that the outside society op- may oppress your group, but the other is that your group itself sees itself as intimately bonded, sees itself as very connected on a very ancient, historical, social, even biological level. Um, and so, because of that, that tends to override treating other identities as important because one of my identities has this kind of ancient, pre-modern, unchosen, primordial feature. So what does this have to do with liberalism? Because the core idea of liberalism is everybody, equal dignity, equal respect, equal rights. The, The state exists to essentially protect those things and not treat you know it seems anathema to the very idea of liberalism to say we are going to treat people differently based on their different identities or their different group categorizations like that's to some level that's like the antithesis of even the rule of law right is to treat people differently based on these characteristics as opposed to equal treatment of all so it does seem like identity politics potentially exists in tension with with liberalism? Yeah, I think there are forms of identity politics that can be intentional with liberalism, particularly when identity politics means uh, creating categories where one group is is hierarchically placed above another. So let's say whites above blacks would be a historical reason. That is also a form of identity politics, right? Um, there's a somewhat biting quote from Mark Lilla where he criticizes identity politics and he says that the KKK was the first identity group in America. But which is, I think, somewhat unfair to the advocates of identity politics today, but has a point, which is that um, there is a way in which identity politics is focused on people as members of groups and not as members of individuals, and particularly when it focuses on them as members of groups in ways that distinguishes them and makes them, gives them privileges or abilities or rights that other groups don't have. Um, I think usually when we think about identity politics, though, um, the reason that they emerge, and this goes back to our conversation about identities being imposed and, and the nature of oppression, they often emerge because people aren't being treated equally. So Black Lives Matter is not some kind of claim for Black people to be given more rights than white people. It's a claim for Black people to be given the same rights as white people and be treated the same by the police force, right? Or in other forms of public policy, such as housing and so on. Um, and so often identity politics has the super might have the superficial appearance of being about treating people unequally, but historically, um, there are really two forms of identity politics. There's the identity politics that wants unequal treatment, and there's the identity politics that wants equal treatment. And the difference between those types of types of politics are very is very very important. 
You have talked about this in the context of what you call tolerance versus recognition um, and how these identities should should play out in a little in both a liberal regime and in the way that liberal citizens interact with each other and think about each other. Can you unpack a bit about what you mean this difference between toleration and recognition? Sure. So tolerance is the social standard that has been that liberals basically invented going back some hundreds of years where it's kind of encapsulated by the phrase live and let live. You can do your thing and I could do my thing and both of those things are okay and we agree to live around each other. We don't celebrate or affirm or include what the other person is doing. We just let the other person do whatever it is that they want to do, assuming that that person is not interfering with my sphere, sphere and what it is I want to do. Um, and so tolerance is really about suffering the existence of difference. It's about allowing something that you don't necessarily like to continue to exist um, and to not initiate force or harm or coercion against it. Recognition, so in political philosophy language, we may say that tolerance is a negative form of liberty, right? It's about not interfering with someone else's rights. Uh, recognition is basically the opposite. It's a form of positive liberty. It's about being accepted, included, celebrated. And the term recognition comes from the philosopher Charles Taylor, who has a famous essay called The Politics of Recognition that came out in the 90s about this move, this shift by groups to not only wanting to be tolerated, but to be recognized and celebrated. Um, and so you could easily think of the word recognition as a synonym for inclusion, celebration, acceptance, and so on. Um, in some ways, it has a crossover with your concept of sympathetic joy in the sense that we're not only allowing something to exist despite we're suffering its existence, but we're consciously adopting a positive celebratory attitude towards it. And so why would we want why would we want one versus the other, I suppose, within if we're thinking within a liberal context? So I my argument is that both of these uh, values are rel are are important. There tends to be a split where people are either team tolerance or team recognition. They either want um, just this very thin doctrine of, of suffering other people's existences, or they want a strong celebration. And people tend to be very binary about these kinds of things, as you see in the discourse about identity in general. Um, I, my argument is that tolerance is a kind of basic moral principle for in order for society to function. Because what tolerance says is that we don't have to like each other to live alongside each other. We don't have to like each other to get along. We can cooperate where it's possible for us to cooperate. And we don't have to cooperate in other areas. And so you don't have to love the fact that I'm Jewish um, in order for you to sell me bagels. Well, actually, that would be weird. Probably if you're selling me bagels, you probably are also Jewish. But um, in order to sell me stuff, right? And so the marketplace is actually a good example of the, of the tolerant attitude where we're just trying to, I'm trying to make a, make a buck and you're, and you have something I want or vice versa. And so there's an exchange and we don't have to love each other in order for this to work. Um, what this misses, um, and is that life is kind of sad if all that happens is we tolerate each other. So, if you think about community and the way that people form community, the community is not formed by people tolerating each other. It's by people celebrating and accepting and appreciating each other. And then there's a group experience that gets created as a result of this. 
So the hypothetical scenario to people that I imagine is you move into a neighborhood and as soon as you move in, people invite you to a potluck. And as a result of the potluck, people share food from all of their different cultures. And you have this great accepting, appreciating, mutual, mutually beneficial uh, exchange and appreciation of people's identities. Now, alternatively, imagine that you move into the neighborhood and nobody harasses you, nobody bothers you. Um, but the only conversation you have is about whether your tree is, has leaves that are falling onto someone else's yard. Right. And the only conversations you have are about whether your space is interfering with someone else's space. Now, there's nothing inherently bad about the toleration paradigm. It's just a little bit diminished in terms of the fundamental goods of a human life. And so what I argue is that in some contexts, on a more basic level, the level that allows society to function, we need to tolerate. But if we want to create community, we need to recognize. And so recognition is appropriate in certain contexts in which community is important. Yeah, good. No, I like that. And I think as you were speaking, one of the things that occurred to me is how how much of recognition – so if you just say to someone, here's something that's wildly different from what you're used to, and we are going to just suddenly expose you to it, and you have to not only tolerate it, but you should you should like it, celebrate it, enjoy it, take pleasure in it, etc., that can be challenging. Like there's there's a process to get from tolerance to delight and recognition. And and a lot of it takes immersion. It takes like repeat contacts, right? So the, the community that you're trying to, or you know, you a new musical genre. So you recommend to me some really out there album of of metal that is well beyond my particular tastes. So uh, my daughter takes drum lessons and her teacher is a is the drummer in what I can recognize as a very good progressive black metal band. But I can't stand black metal singing. Like I just absolutely it does not work for me in the slightest. Um, and so I could I could be intolerant of it in the sense that I could just say, I'm never going to listen to it. If you start playing it in the car while we're driving somewhere, I'm going to demand that you turn it off. You know, I'm going to dislike the person who lives next door who's really into it and so on. Um, and so I'm going to I'm going to refuse to be exposed to it, which would basically be like intolerance. Um, but even if I don't like it, if you play it like right now, if you play it for me and you explain to me what's going on and you give me different examples and I listen to it for a while, I may come to eventually like it. And we've all, I think, had that kind of experience, like an album we didn't like at first or a food that we didn't like the first time we tried it, but you know, pushed through and now it's among our favorite things. Um, and so it wasn't a like forcing myself to like it. It was a what I didn't like through exposure turned into something that I did. And, and to me, that is the problem with saying mere toleration is what we need and holding up basically toleration as the moral ideal is that in a sense, it discourages people from aiming higher than that, from aiming for it. It says, okay, the point that you should stop at is I'm not going to beat you up because you like progressive black metal and I'm not going to stop you from listening to it, but I'm certainly going to try to avoid it, 
right? Like, and and you're done, and we stop there if tolerance is all we need. But if we can say, no, there's this other higher thing to aim at, it kind of encourages people to like to stick with it. And that's when you generate – and it's not just, I think, that the recognition – like my moral relationship to you is better if I recognize and appreciate, say, your Judaism versus if I merely tolerate your Judaism, right? Like we will, our friendship can be deeper. We can, it's a stronger connection, more value comes out of it, et cetera. Um, but also these communities can be built out. And and so when you mentioned the sympathetic joy, I think that's part of my argument is it's not that everyone needs to like everything, but if we can recognize that ta- that recognition and taking pleasure in different ways of doing things is like a higher moral aim then it's more likely we'll get to those things and we'll get to the stronger communities, the stronger solidarity, the deeper relationships and all of the stuff that not just benefits liberalism and liberal institutions, but like makes our lives more rewarding and richer and more pleasurable and, you know, deeper and all of those things as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm inclined to agree. Like I said, I think of toleration, I, I like the phrase moral minimums and moral maximums. So moral mini- so toleration is a moral minimum. It's the basic level that you should expect from someone else in a community. Um, but it's not the only thing you could possibly expect. And there may be contexts in which you have a right to expect more. So if we're friends, it would be a pretty bad, and we are, um, it would be a pretty bad friendship if the only thing we did is I said, I really like this thing. And you're like, oh, that's cool. I don't care. Um, and, and vice versa. So there are a lot of contexts in which don't merely tolerating isn't doing the right amount in order to respect people as full human beings. You're not doing, you're not actually, you're actually disrespecting them by not taking those commitments that they have seriously. Um, on the other hand, there can, to- recognition cannot be a form of disrespect if you reduce them to those commitments. So if you decided that I'm a Jew, and the only interesting thing about me is that I'm a Jew, and you're going to treat me in my Jewy Jewness as in like every interaction that we have. That would also be a form of disrespect, and that would be a form of hyper recognition of one aspect of who I am, and that would also fail to properly appreciate me in terms of the nuances of who I am. So, the part of the challenges about recognition is that it's highly contextual and it's highly dialogical. In order to properly pay respect to someone, you need to actually engage with them and understand the nuances and complexities of what their identities are and tr- pay tribute to them relative to who that person is and realistically in terms of who that person is and not kind of abstractly from the outside decide that you know what or who this person is because you've picked up on the most publicly um, salient or or um, politically significant part of who they are. Is that then one of the critiques of, say, wokeism or whatever gets perceived as as wokeism in the sense that – so a lot of people I think who are anti-woke um, are, are anti-woke for basically the reasons that they hold – they hold prejudices against gay and trans people. They might have racial prejudices. Um, they might have an idea like they might have misogynistic views, even if these aren't like really conscious or aren't, you know, like hood wearing levels. 
and they just don't like being told like, hey, cracking jokes at these different groups expenses probably isn't cool or hey, the like you constantly hitting on everyone at the office probably isn't a good idea. You should knock it off. They just they don't like like stuff that they have been used to being suddenly like not socially acceptable. Um, and that seems to me like just kind of a, a bad argument against wokeism. Uh, but there it seemed but some of the smarter ones do seem to latch on to this essentially disrespectful recognition that you just mentioned, which is I as a hashtag ally am essentially like essentializing all of these under like disfavored groups, the groups that have been traditionally lower on the hierarchy and so on, and and basically reducing all of these, you know, very diverse individuals with lots of interests and lots of elements of their di- of their identity to their membership in victim group X, Y, or Z. Yeah, and I think um, the smarter critique of, I don't know, wokeism or identity politics or social justice politics, whatever we want to call it, um, all of which have a certain amount of ambiguity because they're especially because they're often used as pejoratives. Um, but I think there is a valid concern that we are reducing people to their group status. And by doing that, as particular, we retribalize society, we redefine society in terms of these opposing groups. And we no longer people can no longer learn how to really cooperate with each other because they only see everybody they see other people only as group members, and those group members, if they're not members of my group, then they're an out group and they're other. And so that creates potential for conflict and even violence. Um, I think there's some validity in that, and there are versions of identity and social justice and woke politics that do essentialize people, uh, basically into thinking about them primarily as members of oppressed group X or oppressed group Y. Um, I think the more, what I would consider to be more sophisticated version of that politics would simply say, it is not an irrelevant fact that this person is a member of oppressed group X or oppressed group Y. It does affect their life. It is important. It does matter for their wealth, their health and well-being. Um, and so we engage with them. You should be attentive to the fact that they probably have had certain experiences. Um, it's not crazy for me to say that my black friend is not just a person, but it's pr- someone who may well have experienced racism, may well have uh, had that color their life and their identity. Um, and so I should be sensitive to that. Now it's entirely possible that none of that that's not true at all. But noticing that they have that piece of identity or no, or or thinking about the possibility that that identity might matter to them is a way of taking them seriously and taking their experiences seriously um, without also reducing or essentializing them to that identity. Stephen Colbert, when he was doing still doing the Colbert report, had this running joke about not seeing color. He was like, I'm literally colorblind. I can't, I can't tell if you, my guest sitting in front of me, are white or black or or something else. Um, and and the that's that attitude, there's a lot of people who think that is the proper way to deal with past discrimination on the basis of membership in different oppressed, marginalized, disfavored groups is to just say, I don't, I don't even see it. I mean, not in the literal sense that Colbert's joke was based on, but you know, like I don't see it. Or 
the when people are saying we need we need to talk about gay rights or we need to talk about black lives matter people will respond with i'm just in favor of rights for everyone or all lives matter they're they're just saying even talking about this is kind of continuing the bad parts of the identity politics are you saying does does kind of the moral value of recognition mean that that approach is wrong um i think so i think uh that i mean there are different forms of recognition as i said earlier in our conversation and sometimes all recognition is about is about rectifying wrongs and so when people say black lives matter they're not trying to they don't disagree with the idea that everyone's lives matter it's simply focusing on that part of the community for whom rights have not been recognized or her rights have not are not being enforced um and so saying black lives matter is the same thing as saying all lives matter because it's saying that these lives matter too as part of the general statement that all lives matter um and they're not being attended to so um there is that but there can also be identity i like recognition that's not about rectifying a wrong it's just about appreciating who someone is and so um those kind of come out of different different contexts in the in the appreciating who someone is context it tends to be i think more personal and local um but in the um more in you know injustices context it'll, it is sometimes part of a larger institutional conversation but these things are not binaries and what you know what happens in our culture affects what happens in our institutions and and so on and, and sort of back and forth and so it's not like there are easy dividing lines between um, an intimate friendship and um, a national politics, um, because the levels of intimacy that I have are on a spectrum. So my relationship with my family is very intimate. My relationship with the president is not intimate at all. But there are a lot of spans in between. You know, how do I relationship to the person? What's my relationship to my uh, to my grocer? Right? What's my relationship to my child's teacher what's my relationship to you know the guy that teaches your daughter drums like there's there are levels of intimacy here and the lines can become blurry and complicated and so to what extent we are treating someone in a more in dispassionate way versus a more intimate way can can become kind of messy um and the extent to which our recognition of their um of their identity status, to what extent that's a function of because we're concerned about injustice versus to what extent that's a function of us caring about learning about them as a person. Um, and I don't think there's any like formulaic answer to that. It's very contextual kind of Hayekian sort of thing where you pay a lot to what's going on in front of you and the people in front of you. What are we to make of certain identities becoming kind of non-identities or the default and and then not seeing that as identity politics. So as I'm thinking of every time a, a movie, particularly like a genre like superhero movie or geek culture movie gets announced that has minority character, like a minority main character or a woman main character or a, a gay characters are featured prominently, you get this line of pushback that is like having a black superhero is political. 
um, or making that character a woman, you know, changing like if we if we had the next James Bond, James Bond to be black, that would be political. But if the next James Bond changes his hair color or is 30 years younger than the current James Bond, that's just still the James Bond, right? As long as he's white, because white is kind of default. Um, this particularly, I think, whiteness, Americanness gets treated as this default thing and any deviation from it is political. I'm, I'm putting that in, in quotes because that's the that's the argument. Um, maleness is the default and and being female is the different. Straight is the default and so on. Christian is the default. Um, and so it's a it's almost a like identity politics of non-recognition of identity and it looks very weird from the outside there's nothing political about a woman superhero just like there's nothing political about like it's it can be political but it doesn't have to be right like it looks very weird but it seems to be this odd like non-identity identity politics yeah i mean i think um often what people consider to be identity politics is a politics that prioritizes an identity that's different from the status quo but hidden within the status quo is its own form of identity politics and so simply the, the the kind of implicit biases of like who we recognize to be a certain superhero character or who we can imagine being that character um, and them usually having characteristics, as you said, of let's say them being a white, straight man who's Christian and so on. Um, though that default in our head privileges and actually creates a kind of cultural hierarchy of one identity over another identity. And so... In that sense, um, changing the identity to a black person or a woman or a non-straight person or whatever um, is political in the sense that it challenges a, an underlying cultural assumption. Um, it challenges a, a, a value about how we self-organize, how we culturally represent our society. Um, now, um, and I, th that is that a bad thing? I'm inclined to say it's not a, it's that it's a great thing. Um, and I think it's a particularly important and, you know, there's lots of discourse about the value of representation, but it actually does make a big difference to people who having spent their lives consuming content with people who don't look like them, they can learn to, they can help, helps them identify with people who do look like them. That doesn't mean that they should never learn to expand themselves and to learn how to identify with people who don't look like them, because I think that's important. I think that's important in art that we learn to identify with people, even people who don't look like us. But it's nice once in a while to have someone who does look like us and to feel affirmed in that there is a kind of value and majesty and uh, literary resonance and, and importance and cultural significance to the whatever combination of things I am, as opposed to whatever combination of things someone else is. Another interesting thing that goes on is how many people tend people who are in the the centered default identity. So, straight white men as as kind of our you know, archetypal version of this, then see recognition of difference or of different identities, not as 
a higher moral ideal than toleration, but as a direct threat that they've they've essentially taken in the the defaultness of their identity as part of their identity. And and so the mere recognition of so having more black characters or more gay characters or more women characters on television and in movies or having pride flags out in the community um, or having the school your your kids school occasionally reading books featuring like a gay couple horror of horrors is they see that as a as a threat because they've so identified with being the default and and the move away from being the default feels like an undermining of not just kind of the nature of culture and and the world in which they live in but but like a threat to who they are and i i also think it gets paired with because we see minorities minority status minority identities as suffering the slings and arrows that come along with that oppression marginalization and so on there's this there's this holding on to our default dominant status because that i need the majority of people to look like me or else i feel like i'm i feel threatened and i feel like my identity is going to be if if the default is no longer straight white men then straight white men may feel like now i'm going to be oppressed the way that i have impressed i have oppressed all of the like gay people or black people or women and so on yeah i mean there's a deep irony to this right i always find it um so there's a series of of christian mm-hmm. films that have come out in the past decade or so called god's not dead um and in a- each film um there is some kind of conspiracy against christians um from expressing their faith, whether they're a, I think the first class, the char- first movie, the character is in a philosophy class. And contrary to the spirit of the philo- of philosophy, the uh, professor, played by Kevin Sorbo, um, which is quite a fall for Kevin Sorbo. Um, He's um, actually pretty good in that role. I had to watch yeah. that movie for a, another podcast. It's a deeply weird movie. I recommend it highly as an insight into just how bizarre kind of the victim complex in white evangelical America is. But yeah. yeah, I mean, he's still a good actor, right? But the point of the thing is in in the philosophy class, Kevin Sorbo's character um, requires his students to assign to sign a uh a statement saying they don't believe in God, which is like the opposite of what would happen in any responsible philosophy class is requiring statements of, of non-faith. Um, and, you know, there's a Christian character in the class who can't sign it. And so they get to a big back and forth about whether God is, God is dead or not. And the Christian, you know, then the rest of the movie is basically a long po- apologetic for why they think Christianity is true. And in each class, the character like, you know, um, you know, give some reason why they think God is real. Um, and then in the end, it turns out that Kevin Sorbo's character is mad at God because his wife died, and it's this kind of problem of suffering situation. Um, and every single um, iteration of the God's Not Dead franchise is about some Christian being um, oppressed because of some def- because their 
um, their views are, are being marginalized. Um, now, none of this actually happens in the real world. And as David French, himself a Christian, has pointed out many, many times, Christians in America enjoy the most religious freedom that Christians have ever enjoyed anywhere at any time on earth. Um, but there is this sense that because they're not the dominant culture anymore, um, that and because you know they have to be potentially sensitive and say happy holidays instead of merry christmas or whatever um that they're that they might threaten to become a minority status i think what's ironic about it is they don't always realize that this is precisely what they are afraid of happening which is not actually happening to a certain extent but even if it were happening what they're afraid of hap- afraid afraid of going on is precisely what is the marginalization or the non-dominance, at least, that every other minority group of whether it's religious or racial or whatever has gone through in America. Um, and so there's this um, very strange recognition of the possibility of marginalization, but then not recognizing that marginalization in places where it is actually occurring. Yeah, I will... So again, I rec- I strongly recommend at least the first movie. They go downhill in how fun they are to watch pretty quickly. Um, but the first movie does have this – I did not grow up in evangelical America. I did not spend – it's, it's not a culture that I know – I knew a lot about going into this. And I was shocked at how bizarre the level of portrayed victimization and marginalization was – in this that i mean it's it takes place at a small liberal arts co- at a small college in it's i don't think they ever tell you but it looks like like a midwestern town area and the oddity of like this kid when they kind of have a raise of hands of who doesn't believe in god like he's like the only christian it's like him and his girlfriend are like the only christians on campus is the takeaway which is utterly weird because they're most of those kids in that classroom would have been they're all like white i think as well like they're you know um the the not understanding how academic philosophy works but just this sense that yes like the all of american culture is turned against white protestantism which is utterly bizarre because if there is any identity that achieves basically universal recognition in america it is white protestants you know we are are like god save america is all god bless america is all over the place like every every president professes religious faith we these are the default characters all over the place it's just it's it's totally bizarre and it seems like it's taking it's it's basically a sense that recognition is not enough like i want so we can have tolerance we can have like recognition but what they want is like identity dominance hegemony and yeah hegemony and and so i guess my question after all of this conversation is if as i think you and i ag- agree um tolerance is like the baseline you know like intolerance is clearly immoral you know you should you should have tolerance but it's not it's not good enough it's not what you should aim for in your own life a lot of your arguments are about how it strengthens like strengthens community strengthens character a lot of my arguments are about how actually coming to 
love all of the difference that is inevitably in the world around you means you're going to just be happier. Like the the not liking it is just the the route direct to kind of suffering, like a boring life, I think, as you put it, but it's also just like suffering and rage at difference is not going to make you happier. Um, what do we do about that? Like, how do you go out into the world as as liberals who want to strengthen liberalism, who believe in these values and convince people, particularly people who have spent their whole lives basically seeing difference and other identities as as a threat or as something that causes them consternation to change their ways, shift their perspective and embrace recognition, sympathetic joy, whatever we might call it. That's a difficult question because essentially what it requires is to ask of people whose identity is based on everyone else sharing the identity to not have that identity, to have an identity based on appreciating difference. And so it requires like a very, very deep head shift in terms of how people relate to one another. And a head shift that I'm not always sure is possible. Um, I think, you know, tolerance is a moral minimum, but recognition has also actually been quite important for the achievement of tolerance. So seeing people as part of my in-group makes it easier to tolerate them. Um, and this is why nationalism exists. This is why different forms of tribalism exist, because people are have a naturally tribal kind of group-oriented uh, psychology. Um, so it's a head shift to get people actually to tolerate even um, as opposed to recognize uh, to the point of hegemony, um, which is actually the social has been the kind of normative standard for most of human history, is hege hegemonic recognition rather than sort of diverse pluralistic recognition. Um, so it's it's a difficult problem. I think um, all we can do is we can do two things. One is that we can try and expand the size of our in group, so that our in group includes more types of people, more ways of being. Um, and also to learn how to have a sense of stealth, have an identity that does not need everyone else to affirm it in order for it to exist, in order for it to be valuable. And learning that identity is not a zero-sum game, that it's not like my identity has to be dominant or versus your identity has to be dominant, but that no one's identity has to be dominant, and that no one's representation has to be dominant. And that what life is about is about appreciating the diversity of differences um, and about learning that um, there are different ways to be and all of them have a certain amount of validity. Obviously, there are complexities within that um, and things that might fall outside the bar. And, you know, there's the old uh, paradox about can, you know, the tolerant tolerate intolerance and all that stuff. But, um, Fundamentally, it's about a reorientation of self, and it's about appreciation for um, identities as a win-win situation rather than a win-lose one. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you like the show and want to support it, head to reimaginingliberty.com to learn more. You'll get early access to all my essays, as well as be able to join the Reimagining Liberty Discord community and book club. That's reimaginingliberty.com or look for the link in the show notes. Talk to you soon.